Hello and welcome everyone. It's time for the 7th Avenue Project. I'm Robert Polly. Today, the story of singer-songwriter Abigail Washburn. It's enough to make you start believing in destiny, if you don't already. Abby always loved to sing and had taken up an interest in banjo and old-time American folk tunes. But despite having a lot of talent, she never thought she could have a musical career of her own. The plan was to become a lawyer in China. But that all changed when a music industry executive heard her playing at a bluegrass convention and right then and there offered her a recording contract in Nashville. That led to a series of musical collaborations, including one with the banjo maestro Bela Fleck. He produced her first album in 2005 and teamed up with her and two other musicians to form the Sparrow Quartet, playing a mix of American and Chinese folk music. The two got romantically involved, tied the knot in 2009, and they have now come forth with a baby boy named Juno, born last year, and a brand new album featuring their two banjos fronted by Abby's vocals. They perform a bunch of original tunes along with some pretty original treatments of traditional chestnuts, like the one we're listening to right now. Well, today we're going to be hearing a lot from the new album, along with uh, some older tunes of Abby's, while talking to her about her life and her approach to music. Stay tuned. Abby, that is a song that uh, we've all heard but uh, never heard like this. That was a song that my mom sang to me when I was a little girl, and my grandmother sang to my mom, and my grandmother's mother probably sang to her. I mean, it probably goes just back and back and back and back. And of course, they didn't sing it quite like that, but um, I've been singing it to Juno since he was born, in, in the major version, you know. I've, oh, wait, I don't know if I can even do it anymore. <laughs> oh, my gosh. <laughs> I've been working on the railroad all my live long days, you know. And um, he loves it, he loves it, he loves it. And then this one day, he was just learning how to bang on the table. I think it was like a year ago. He must have been seven or eight months. And we were just sitting at the table, and he'd recently learned how to sit up, and he'd recently learned how to bang on things and enjoy the sound of it. And, and so he's banging away, and I decided to just sort of start keeping the beat. And then all of a sudden, Railroad came out, like that. It came out in this weird modal version, kind of bluesy and um, kind of primal. And what I really love about it is if you think about it, it's really a, a work song. It's a work song about working on the railroad. So um, the the major version that's just all uh, buoyant and um, positive and robust and um, it, it, it just I don't even think it actually fits the words now that I've discovered it in this different modality. And, you know, who is in the kitchen with Dinah? It's creepy, Well, right? yeah, yeah, yeah. I wanted you to explain it to me because as a kid singing it, I always I always felt those lyrics were real weird. And as an adult, I sort of thought, oh, yeah, this is a classic case of sexual 
double entendre, that, you know, old-fashioned music always was slipping in. So someone's in the kitchen with Dinah playing on the old banjo. Right? You know what I'm saying? I mean, (laughs) banjo is hot. So, um, yeah, and, you know, there's only a few songs in the American traditional canon of music that actually mentions the banjo. And, um, you know, I've been working on the railroad, mentions the banjo, strumming on the old banjo. And then, I, you know, I don't know if everyone understands what happens right after that, but oh, in a yeah. minor key, we play Oh, Susanna. Well, let's and, hear a little bit from that sort of yeah. intermezzo for two banjos, right? Oh, Susanna. Exactly. And so it's in this minor key, and I'm just chunking along Dixieland style, just sort of chunking out chords. And Bela's actually strumming a wild solo that sounds like Oh, Susanna, which is one of the other... Um, songs that um, we can think of in, you know, the last couple of hundred years of American music that, um, well, I guess that's all America's been around for, has it? <laughs> but that's the only song we can think of that, um, that, that, that calls that out the banjo, calls out the banjo with a banjo on her knee. So um, we decided if we're going to go down this road, let's just go down it. Yeah. Yes. Well, let's play that because you guys sort of reinvent uh, Railroad, but you also reinvent Oh, Susanna. <laughs> So uh, an instrumental break there from uh, Railroad slash Oh Susanna by Abigail Washburn and Bela Fleck. And uh, I think people are going to be asking throughout this album, uh, and I might as well ask it now. So who's playing what? We're playing banjos. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's let's clarify here. Okay, we'll break it down. <laughs> so um, Bela is rooted in the three-finger bluegrass style um, that Earl Scruggs made so prominent in America um, in the 50s and and throughout his whole life until, you know, he passed a few years ago. I'm playing what is essentially called claw hammer banjo, um, another word for it is frailing. And um, in the claw hammer style, it's, it's a lot of downstrokes and, um, and a kind of an upward stroke of the thumb. It really is much more closely related to the way that the banjo was played when it was brought here from Africa. And my approach to songs is, is called Round Peak Style of Clawhammer Banjo Playing, which was popularized at the Galax Convention. And a lot of the people I love, especially my, one of my main mentors on the banjo, Riley Bogus from Walkertown, North Carolina, who studied with um, Fred Cockrum. And um, that those, he, he handed down to me this style called Round Peak, which is essentially a lot of pull-offs um, to help keep this, um, driving machine gun-like rhythm going, uh, pull-offs with the left hand up the neck while also um, creating a percussive sound with the right hand nails and fingers as I'm um, creating the roll. So it's, it's a really unique sound, although it's quite popular within the old-time um, old circles of musicians. Uh, yeah, so if I could just throw out some stereotypes and you could tell me whether you, you object to them. Uh, claw hammers, like rootsier, older style. Uh, yeah. Sometimes it's more like playing rhythm guitar because there's a little more strumming and a steady beat. And uh, 
Finger picking is this uh, a series, often really fast, of single notes played by the thumb and the index finger and the middle finger, right, all with picks on them. Uh, so it's often considered more of a solo or virtuoso type style. And uh, I don't know, is that is that really uh, unfair to? Uh... No, I think a lot of that's true. Uh, I think a lot of the um, clawhammer styles are associated more with Appalachian and older forms of music, including square dance music. And the bluegrass music was specifically breaking out of being a dance tradition. It was specifically breaking into being a listening tradition similar to the jazz that was flowering all through the South at the same time. It wanted to become a listening music with virtuosic, um, solo-oriented musicians in, in the bands. So they, they have two very different functions musically. Although, you know, there's all kinds of wonderful musicians these days that do a lot of different things with both styles. And, of course, Bela is, is just at the, at the helm of, of making so many different kinds of music fit on the banjo, and the banjo fit into so many different kinds of music. And, you know, I, it's too much to simplify him into this three-finger style of picking because he does absolutely everything with those <laughs> fingers on that banjo. Oh, Susanna. <laughs> I think his fans know, yeah, uh, nothing seems beyond his reach. Um, I, I had him on the show talking about his uh, concerto, which he performed in our area oh, yeah. recently for banjo and orchestra, uh, so they could hear him do all kinds of sort of classical things on the banjo. Um, is there a, a, a tune from the current album, uh, Bela Fleck and Abigail Washburn? That's the title of the album, as well as the <laughs> names of you guys. Um, is there one that contrasts these styles uh, in a way that people could uh, sort of pick them out? There's two songs where we're playing in our sort of distinctly sort of connected approaches to, like connected to tradition approaches. Um, Bela's playing three-finger style on and I'm playing Clawhammer style on the Bartok piece. Oh, I was going to get to playing that. So, yeah, let's do it. Um, first of all, let's remind listeners, many of whom already know this, that Bela was named after Bela Bartok. Yes. Uh, but, uh, as he talked about in the interview I did with him, he did not listen to Bartok for a long time because his dad, who named him for Bela Bartok, was not part of his life as he was growing up. And uh, so he didn't get around to really getting to know Bela Bartok until fairly recently when he was composing this uh, concerto. And uh, so now he has embraced Bela Bartok, and I'm glad to say it because this piece is so beautiful. Yeah, Uh, Bela did such a beautiful job of arranging it. He just took these... We are basically both hands of the piano. So if you can imagine Bartok sitting at the piano and playing with both of his hands, at times I'm the right hand and Bela's the left hand. and then we decided to take certain melodies and arrange them so that they became, so that they sounded like they were traditional melodies on our instruments. Great. So this is uh, an adaptation of a piano piece, or several piano pieces that Bartok composed in a suite called Four Children. Uh, and let's hear you guys tackle it on two banjos.
That was a duet for banjo uh, called Four Children, actually composed by Bela Bartok for piano. And you, Abby, and uh, your husband, Bela Fleck, have rendered it in banjo, yeah, and contrasting your two banjo traditions, um, your uh, claw hammer style banjo and Bela's uh, three-finger style. That's right. You and Bela first met and started playing together when, exactly? We first met at um, a square dance in Nashville. <laughs> and Bela, Bela never plays square dances, but for some reason, this is, this is the one square dance that he played because a friend of his, Russ Berenberg, called him uh, and said, hey, there's this great fiddler down from Vermont. Do you want to play square dance together? And I just happened to go to that square dance. And so we met that evening, and then um, we were lucky to just have similar groups of friends, and we kept sort of bumping into each other and... Eventually, we were both out of relationships and, and just bumped into each other at the, at the fortuitous moments. So I was making a record, essentially, when Bela and I started to really connect, and he became a, a co-producer on that first record, Song of the Traveling Daughter. And that's how we really started to cre- have, a, have a musical relationship, was through thinking about how to make this record as, as wonderful as we possibly could together. Uh, we really didn't consider a whole lot becoming a duo at any point, m- mostly, honestly, because I was so new to the scene, and Bela had been, you know, he's several, many dozens time Grammy winner and uh, has a really successful, wonderful career going as a, as a banjo, as an instrumentalist leading bands like the Flectones and everything. So I was really nervous about the idea of trying to, even though we love being together and we like, like playing, we love playing music together, I didn't really want to attempt to try to become a Bela's business partner and, and go on the road <laughs> together um, until I had really really kind of broken ground myself. So it's been 10 years since I've been on, well, 11 years now since I've been touring. And um, finally, last year when we were starting to talk about having, you know, when we decided we were going to have a baby, and um, I guess that was a few years ago now because the baby's 16 months. <laughs> we, we decided, okay, maybe this is the time. You know, I'd, I'd done enough touring on my own, and uh, like you said, I'd, I'd given the TED Talk and, and had a lot of great experiences and a nice little following myself. So when... Um, you know, when when promoters would get the call, Bela and Abby want to come perform, they'd say, oh, that's a great idea, rather than go, going, who's Abigail Washburn? You know, Right, right. You had made your name and had your own re- reputation. Yeah, I needed to work on that, and so I did, and, and it finally felt like the right time uh, to do that. Um, when did you fall in love? Oh, when did we fall in love? Okay, well, I think the truth is that Bela knew we were a great fit before I did. So uh, when I got out of my relationship, he, he found out. And really, I, I should let him tell this <laughs> part of the story, honestly, but um, he, he, he really came after me. He was like, I think that we're, we're a good fit, you know, and, and I was uncertain about it because of our age difference. And um, I was, you know, finally single after many, many years and only having a few boyfriends in my life. And I thought, you know, it's time for me to, to, to be free, but he was right. And um, we started making music together, working on this record, spending time hanging out, and we just were a great fit. And so it's, it's stuck. I can't tell you at what point exactly the, the falling in love happened, but it was fairly quick. When you say this record, you don't mean the current one. You mean... Uh, Sorry, Song of the Traveling Daughter. The very first one from 2005. The very first one, yeah. Yeah. Um, well, I think people find it adorable that two really um, admired musicians 
both play the same instrument, though in different styles, are now a couple with a baby uh, making beautiful music. Uh, they can't get enough of that story. <laughs> no, it's a good one. We like it, too. <laughs> it's, I mean, it's not easy, as you can imagine. I mean, anybody who's had a baby knows that just in and of itself is hard work. And then, and then trying to work together, you know, to really combine our two careers and our two approaches to being business people on top of our creative hopes as musicians, which are very different in a lot of ways. We've really had to find a lot of ways to dovetail those. Um, and sometimes the process has been a little bit painful. Our first time really trying to trying to make that happen was during the Sparrow Quartet uh, years with Ben Soli and Casey Dreesen, which was a beautiful thing that we got to have this wonderful quartet together. We actually came together because we did some tours of China. I was spearheading these tours of China, and they, they all wanted to come with me. And our odd instrumentation, banjo, banjo, cello, and fiddle, and we weren't quite sure how we were going to pull it off, but of course, after a few days of rehearsals in, in China, we, we figured out some really cool ways to, to create a chamber, chamber grass sound. But, but that whole process of learning how to be partners in that project with, uh, for Bela and I both was a, a huge uh, learning curve. And I'm really glad we did that before we got into this project, you know, um, our first duo record. I'm, I'm really glad because we got out a lot of the kinks, and I think we had reasonable expectations for each other based on our experience in that, in that group. I mean, Bela has to go to this place where he's comfortable with the fact that I work in a sort of a, a slow conceptual Away, and I'm I'm not about virtuosity. I'm about soulfulness, and I have to be comfortable with the fact that he pushes and pushes, and he's methodical, and um, he loves the technique and and the the patterns and the the mathematics. You know, so um, combining those two approaches has been uh, the magic, but also uh, the crux of of difficulty. Um, but we are really blossoming into this place where we understand that um, if we can let it grow, uh, if we can let this, our particular concoction together grow, it, it's, it's got a lot to offer us and, and I think the people who, who hear it. They can feel that. They can feel the work and the love that went into it, you know? Yeah, yeah, I certainly could. Um, I'd like to play another tune, and this one has an opening where you guys are just seamlessly working together. Uh, this is a composition by Bela called What You're Gonna Do. Yeah, that's actually the other really good example of claw hammer and three-finger picking. Under the 
that was just a section there from What You're Gonna Do, uh, written by Bela Fleck and performed by Bela Fleck and Abigail Washburn. Abigail's my guest today on the show. Um, that one, uh, too, blends the, the very different styles, as you say, uh, that you and Bela play. Um, claw Hammer by you and uh, Three-Fingered Picking by, by Bela. Um, that uh, also blends a feeling of old and contemporary in terms of its like subject matter. Like yeah. it could be referring to the biblical flood, or it could be referring to global warming, maybe. That's exactly right. In the end, there may be no difference. <laughs> uh, yeah, but I think you're catching on to the what's at the heart of the record is this very present, current day essence, and yet. We both come from these traditions that sound as as old as time itself, and so what are what are these themes, and are they are they new or are they old? And the answer is both. You know, throughout uh-huh. the whole thing, it's it's, it's both. Yeah, yeah, there, and and it just one moment I feel like I'm listening to something contemporary, and the next I feel like I'm listening to something that might have been around a very long time. Let's play another one. And of course, the, the, the third instrument, uh, aside from your banjo and Bela's banjo on this album, is your voice, which is a, a thing unto itself. Uh, I want to play a little bit that'll feature that. This is a song you composed called Ride to You. Abby, that uh, that opening, that little, oh, that that gorgeous little fluting sound you make at the very beginning. Yeah. <laughs> uh, am I wrong to think maybe there's some Chinese influence in that sound? You know, I suppose so. I, I can't say that it was a, a conscious effort, but um, I certainly have spent enough time going back and forth and being in China and thinking in Chinese and composing lyrics in Chinese and 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 being influenced by those melodies and those scales that um, any anything's possible. So maybe maybe not as much, but I, I, do, I do feel like when I listen to your voice sometimes, it does remind me of uh, traditional Chinese vocals and some some of the intonation, I guess. Yeah, I could I could believe that. I mean, I suppose every artist to some degree reflects what they love, and and I I certainly love a lot of the old Chinese music. Sounds like screeching cats to some people, but I think it's fabulous. (laughs) Tell me about your voice and how it came about, because it has a very distinctive quality. 
I don't have the musical vocabulary uh, to describe a kind of smokiness and a lovely softness, a velvety quality in your voice. Uh, I thought of a painting term, which is sfumato. Whoa. Uh, yeah, it's like what Leonardo da Vinci used to sort of soften colors and make them smokier. Um, how did your voice develop? It's still developing, so <laughs> that's an important thing to know. I always loved to sing, especially in choir in elementary school, and then I just stuck with it. You know, my extra class uh, was always was always choir. And when I moved to the Midwest, choirs were like a serious thing in, in high school, and I didn't make the grade. I never made the cut. Oh, really? The, yeah, I was always wow. in the... The not, you know, the not uh, excellent choir, and so I had this very clear sense it built into what I what I thought I could be or would be and was. I didn't think that I was a great singer, and so um, I never thought I needed to develop my voice. It wasn't it wasn't a consideration. I just knew I loved singing, and then I went off to, to college to university, and I continued to be in choirs and. Um, something that I always loved since I was a little kid, and I did—I grew up in a very diverse community with tons of Latinos, Asians, uh, blacks, and um, we would do gospel music, um, black gospel music. And so I continued to feel really connected to that tradition as I grew up, and I fell in love with like the soundtracks of wonderful movies like Power of One, which was basically like black gospel meets uh, South African um, Soweto-style singing, and... Uh, I always carried that with me, and I became obsessed with Mahalia Jackson in college, and I would sing it in the shower, and I'd sing it after classes, and I'd sing it, you know, before I, while I was cooking dinner. And um, I just always wished I could have that kind of voice, like a Mahalia. But I wasn't kidding myself. I wasn't like, I, didn't, I never thought that I was a great singer, but I was always singing. So I think by the time I, a few things happened at once. First, I, I fell madly in love with China after my freshman year of college. And all the while I'm in, in this, um, actually a black gospel choir at my, my school. And I'm also dating a guy in a bluegrass band. So it's kind of this perfect storm um, for me finding a place for my voice in a way that I never could have imagined prior to these university years. I essentially heard a, a Doc Watson LP playing at a party one night. And I heard it, and at first I was like, is that guy white or black? I couldn't uh-huh. even tell. And then I listened a little further, and I was like, well, that's definitely a banjo, and man, that's just cool and lonesome sounding, and it's powerful and intense. And um, I, I decided I just had to learn how to sing that song I was hearing, which was Shady Grove, and once I started, and I had to buy a banjo, so I bought a banjo, I started singing Shady Grove, and that intensity that I had learned from being in black gospel choirs, and yet the sort of natural softness that I had to my voice anyway started to combine in this really wonderful way that sat against the banjo and became this conduit for old-time music. I, I just never knew that that's where I would fit, but when I found it, it was the perfect fit, and people started really reacting to it. You know, I had never thought of myself as a good singer, but all of a sudden I'd be sitting there singing like an old Doc Watson song or a ballad, and, um, and people really, really responded to it. And so I, I got more and more into it at the same time I was getting further and further into Chinese studies. And, um, yeah, and then the magical thing happened where I was on a road trip before I left for, for university to go to, to go to law school in Beijing, China. And I went on this road trip where I stopped in a bunch of places in West Virginia and North Carolina and learned a few more songs that I could take with me on the banjo to China 
where I would start my life of, you know, working in a cubicle and uh, interning and, and becoming a lawyer. And I was magically offered a record deal one night at a bluegrass convention. And so that's what really changed the course of my life into me being like, oh, well, I, I guess I could be a singer and I, I could do this music thing and I, I've always loved this. Why don't I pursue this a little bit? And I'll just go to law school a year later. So my voice it has been on this big journey of not being consciously developed for a listening audience, but just something that came from a place of love deep inside of me. And um, and then it became clear that my voice had a real purpose once I started singing old-time music. Um, and that purpose was partially uh, to find a beautiful, soulful place that my, my voice fit, but also to be able to share this beautiful music of America with my friends in China. You mentioned a story that I had heard before um, that you were sort of discovered out of the blue by a record executive and offered a recording contract right off yes. the bat. Um, that's the kind of thing that every, virtually every performing artist dreams of and that happens to almost nobody. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> no. Well, I'll tell you what, if that hadn't happened to me, I would definitely be doing law in Beijing. Oh, my God. Wow. <laughs> so, wow. So I guess maybe the forces of, the, the greater forces at work knew they had to really throw something my way that would catch my attention and, and change my trajectory if I was going to go go down the musical path. Because um, I had a lot of, I needed a lot of convincing that I was actually a worthy musician in order, because I had heard plenty throughout my life that I that I wasn't. So um, I needed something like that to tell me, oh yeah, oh no, this is good, you should be doing this. Wow. Well, um, yeah, I had no idea you had a, a background in black gospel music. What I knew is that you could sure sing country gospel, and I was going to play an example uh, that is now Really appropriate now that you've mentioned the influence of Doc Watson. Uh, this is from the most recent album, Bela Fleck and Abigail Washburn, and it is And Am I Born to Die. You learned that from Doc Watson, right? Yeah, Doc Watson uh, with Gaither Carleton playing, playing uh, fiddle. And am I born to die To lay this body down and must my trembling spirit fly into a world unknown? Soon as from Yeah. 
So, Abby, that is a just devastatingly beautiful song. You've made it your own again, uh, as you have some so many others on this album, with that particular vocal style of yours. And again, I'm thinking, is that intonation, is that way you have of bending and then clipping notes, is that influenced by Chinese music, or am I just making that up? Well, there's, there's two things at work. Um, one is that in the Appalachian tradition of ballad singing, there's so many examples of this kind of, I, I hear you say the word clipping, and it makes me think of those, like a glottal stop, almost like this moment where you almost throw the note at the end of it, like, ah, ah. Uh-huh. Yeah. Uh-huh. yeah. And that, so that really is something that the elders of Appalachian music have passed along. Um, but there, there are those qualities in some Chinese musics as well. I mean, you can find it in folk music around the world, it's the truth. Um, it's a raw, powerful way to throw your voice out there, and it's, it's music that was developed before sound systems, right? So now people can develop their voices in ways that rely heavily on sonic support, relies heavily on having a microphone and a sound system, you know, these soft, beautiful uh, jazz singers and pop singers and stuff. Well, back 100 years ago, everything had to be audible without a sound system. So and those are the people I'm learning from. I'm learning from the old, old traditions of Appalachia and the mountains here and the mountains in China, and that's a powerful way to get your voice out there is to sing strong and then throw it into the upper register. Mm. Um, yeah, so, so it, 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 it definitely comes from both traditions. You know, there's another thing that comes from both traditions that really throws Bela for a loop sometimes in our collaborations, and anyone that I work with <laughs> who's had any kind of musical training, which I, which I haven't other than um, the oral tradition, is, is that I, I have very little regard for um, even measures, mm. meaning that I mm. feel very comfortable with just following the voice or creating, um, creating composing words and music that don't make sense uh, in terms of in terms of the timing or the count, how to count the time, uh-huh. and that's very uh, that's indicative of Chinese music and and old time uh, Appalachian music as well. Is that there will be all kinds of measures that don't make any sense, and anyone who wants to make sense of it has to work really hard to to somehow put it in a box. Mm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> By the way, that uh, hymn, Am I Born to Die, is actually an Eng- old English hymn from the 18th century. Uh, Charles Wesley, I guess, is the person who wrote it. I gotcha. And then it was adapted for the Sacred Harp Canon, I believe, in, uh, uh, in the Southeast. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, just that haunting sound. Um, you know, a lot of the songs on your album uh, are about loss, death. Mm-hmm. Uh, we played... Um, Ride to You, which was about missing someone or someone who's absent. Uh, Bye Bye Baby Blues, which is a kind of jaunty tune, but it's still saying bye-bye, right? Yeah, 
Yeah. Uh, and then, am I born to die? Oh yeah, there you go. You don't have to explain that one. And you guys even you guys even make working on the railroad sound kind of oh. wistful, kind of ambivalent. Shotgun, we just basically <laughs> try to kill somebody off. <laughs> and then what are they doing in heaven today? Is about the afterlife and missing yes. somebody. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And we just had a baby, right? Right, exactly. So, yeah. Yeah. So I was going to ask you about that little combination there. And <laughs> yeah, it seems like everything's perfect in your life right now. You got the the music, you've got the relationship, you've got the baby, and yet the song is full of like is that coming out of some personal feeling of of you too? Well, I would definitely say that having a baby, I don't know if everybody who's had a baby thinks about this, but for me it definitely brought up the issue of mortality mm-hmm. and um wanting so badly for something to live and thrive in a way I've never experienced before uh, can bring up a lot of issues around loss. Yeah. So for me, having a baby has been a lot about um, a, a, a loss of control and a surrender to this greater power of love of this little person that I you know, can do my best to steward and help, but I don't ultimately feel I have complete control over how, how you know, whether or not they live or die. So that that's definitely been a theme of the last year, year and a half. And it, and being pregnant as well, there's this huge uh, feeling of potential that this, this might not stay, this might go, and being prepared for that the whole the whole time, really. Um, so I, I hate to get so heavy, but yeah, it is heavy. <laughs> and it's um, it's an intense side of uh, the wonder of, of having a new, new baby that... Um, I'm not sure people talk about that much, but it's been a big part of our process. Yeah, I think a, a lot of parents will identify with that. I mean, there, it's unbelievably sweet, and you know it's going to pass in some way too. So, yeah, even if they, if even if they just are thrive and thrive and thrive, they're they're getting re- they're, they're the whole point is that they you need to prepare them to leave you. <laughs> you reminded me uh, in some ways of another song from a from your very first solo album, Song of a Traveling Daughter, uh, Sweet Lullaby. Oh, yeah. And this is uh, Rockabye Dixie. Me and Dixie, we rolled and dreamed. Time held us alone in this world, it seemed. Then morning. Now, when you composed that um, with, I guess, uh, Walter John Stapleton, is that right? That's right, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, when, you, when you wrote that song, I mean, the lyrics say, Me and Dixie, we'd waste away, sleep through the night and all the next day, sleep through the sun, rain and moon, here in this room, O Rockabye, my Dixie child. Time held us alone in this world, it seemed. Then morning broke and awoke you from me. I mean, you, you were writing that 10 years before you had your own baby. What were you thinking? Well, 
that song, that's the first song I've ever written. And, uh, and I wrote it with Bo Stapleton. And um, at that time, he was, he was the bluegrass musician that was my, um, my college boyfriend, my college love. And he and I um, moved down to Nashville together, too. So he was a part of that whole process of me discovering myself as a songwriter in the very beginning. And um, I was getting ready to leave Vermont to go south and um, eventually go to China. And so I was thinking about leaving the north to go down the south. I was living in Vermont. And I just started humming this on a friend's back porch. Oh, rockabye, my Dixie child. And I think for me it was, saying goodbye to an era in my life and um, headed down south. And and then it, at the more and more it, it developed itself, it became clear that one of the larger themes that we pulled out of it was that this could be about the, the end of the Civil War. It could be about, it could be about the, the loss of the South and the, the culture of the South and, the, and the, the sort of the reigning day of the North and Rock-a-bye, Dixie Child, you're going away. Oh, so here I was bringing it into a conversation about the transitory nature of childhood, being a mom to a young child, and uh, that wasn't what you were intending at all. Well, I mean, no, but it has that feeling. So, like, if, you know, I mean, granted, it, it, it is this, there, there's the bigger metaphor of the, the South losing to the North and this whole uh, sea change, but... Um, I mean, it is essentially about transition and loss and and grief um, for these things that will never thrive again in 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 our lifetime. You know, so yeah, it, it really is about that stuff. Even though it isn't specifically about a relationship to a child, but that is the that is the metaphor that's being unpacked. Is this? It's like a mother holding a baby. You know, right? Uh, speaking of babies, then I thought I'd play another one from the new album. With you and Bela. Um, this is an oldie, but uh, again, you guys have made it new. It's Bye Bye Baby Blues. Yeah. Yeah, and it's actually just just the choruses are, are oldies. Um, in, in, in general, the, the verses are things we wrote, um, and then the choruses are from uh, a song that Little Hat Jones out of Texarkana wrote back in the 30s. Yeah, yeah. I'm going to play a little bit from the end of that one. And it's bye, bye, pretty baby, baby, bye, bye. Say, uh, where'd you get that recording of the baby at the end there? <laughs> oh, we, you know, we had to borrow a baby. No, um, Juno, he was so cute. He was just learning how to babble, and we thought, oh, we really got to record some of this because we had all the equipment set up in the basement, and I was running down in between nursings, and so I thought, hey, I'll just bring him down with me and put him in front of the mic, and he started going, and we got it. How convenient. <laughs> how convenient is that? This record would not have been made had it not been for our studio in the basement. I mean, the infant period, especially if you end up, you know, being able to nurse your baby, it's just a 
really, really time consuming. I mean, if I, I, I maybe have an hour in between nursings to run downstairs and work, you know, and, and it got easier and easier as the months went by, but especially in those beginning months, it just would have been impossible. Um, I've always imagined that I could hear something special when family members perform together. You know, all the great musical groups that consisted of brothers or sisters or parents and their kids, you know. And there's, of course, a lot of those in in country and American folk, right? Yeah, yeah. Do you you guys think you've managed to to get that special thing in there? Well, if that special thing is what I think it is, which is where you, you you kind of share a mind, it often works out that you don't have to say too much. You just know one another really well and you can intuit things and and there's a flow there's a flow there because of that um familiarity let's play another song uh again off the new album uh this is a song i think bela composed some years ago new south africa that's right yes he recorded it with the flectones in the 90s and uh brought it back out it just it just sounds well you'll make your own call but i we really liked the sound of the claw hammer and the three finger style against each other, um, and it's just such a very different version than obviously the Flecktones did with Future Man and Victor and uh, Lamont Wooten and, and the and the crew. So it felt like a really cool opportunity to unearth this really beautiful old piece of music that people really love of Bela's and and try it in this new duo banjo setting. So, Abby, um, we just heard a little bit of New South Africa, which is kind of an old song that you guys have revived for your new album, uh, you and Bela. Um, was that Bela uh, starting off and then you enter a little later? Is that what happens there? Yeah, I, I play some chords behind his melody to, to, to get the thing going. And then we can hear that claw hammer style come in. Yes, it starts rolling underneath him once it kicks in. And I, I thought of that song when you mentioned that what you were aiming for and what you seem to have achieved is two minds becoming one musical mind, you know? Yeah, I know what you mean, because um, there are so many notes rolling off of our banjos. <laughs> exactly, yeah. <laughs> that it could be a freaking disaster. <laughs> it could just sound like a mash-up pile-up of n- a note explosion in the worst ways, um, but... Luckily, Bill and I both have this deep respect and admiration for the banjo role. It just it just this potential that the two banjos together could really sound like this rippling, this constant trance, like rippling water, and wanting to never give the listener a chance to 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 feel anything otherwise that can really be in that trance. So we 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 believe that's possible, and that's what we're pursuing every time we sit down and play our two different styles together. And I think you can really. Hear it in New, New South Africa. Um, 
one of the things uh, that happens when you when you adopt a kind of musical tradition the way you did. I mean, you're not a country girl by by upbringing, right? No, no, I'm a <laughs> suburban girl from the Midwest. But you you moved to Nashville. You took up playing this music uh, rooted in Appalachia and rustic America. And of course, that means not just singing a certain way, playing a certain way, but also certain themes. I mean, you've got shotguns in here. Um, I don't think you mentioned pickup trucks anywhere, but uh, <laughs> there's a lot of traditional country themes. Uh, you know, certain kinds of crime, certain kinds of desperation, certain kinds of uh, religiosity, uh, certain kinds of love. Um, it's like a whole culture you get absorbed in. Uh, it sort of reminded me of a guy I knew in college who came in the first year as kind of an academic, uh, nerdy, uh, urban guy, but he took up banjo playing and folk music, and by the end of like one year, he was starting to sound like he was from uh, the country, uh, from the South. Uh, His whole voice changed, his whole way of speaking. Uh, But has it changed you that way, you know, this this whole adopted cultural tradition? I mean, I'm sure it has. Um, well, you write about shooting somebody with a shotgun, not not the sort of thing that <laughs> comes from your own experience. <laughs> uh, well, songs, songs are ways of, of telling stories, right, and connecting with people. And um, the thing that has always always driven me as a as a person, it's like I was just born into this world with these certain um, leanings and attributes and. One of them is that I just have this empathy that um, most of the time is a wonderful gift, but some of the time is incredibly painful because empathy really means that, for me at least, means that I can feel what someone else is feeling. You know, maybe not exactly, but I just have a real sense of it. And um, I had to learn how to control that as a child so that I wasn't overwhelmed. So as as I've grown up, I've learned how to turn that into... Um, into a, a positive thing in my life instead of something that overwhelms me. And, um, and I think that's part of the reason I'm, I'm an artist now is because that's one of my greatest gifts, and I'm not sure it would have been... A, it might have been a gift squandered in another kind of profession, profession like, being, like being an attorney. And um, I'm just so grateful that that gift really gets to, to live in me these days. Um, and... I, I would say say that it's the empathy that drives my approach to songwriting and my approach to my whole my whole career and um, the fact that I'm an artist. And that you know, shotgun may sound like it's like a southern-driven Dixie Chicks kind of uh, revenge song, and in a way it is. But it's also about relating to this anger and trying to almost get these women angry that in all of these old murder ballads just let themselves be slain by some jerk, you know? And uh-huh. I, and I, <laughs> I, I just hear all these murder ballads, and even though I, I love them on some weird sentimental level because they're just age-old, they're almost like the horror movies of the old times, um, I, I really want to say to these women, no, you know, you've got to fight back, you know? And so... Um, that's that's my feeling. Is like I, I want to fight back with you. I want to fight back for you. I, I think that's a pretty universal feeling is anger and defense, self defense. So um, that's really where it's coming from. Um, hmm. That that empathy. So when you're singing a story, especially from a character's perspective, uh, 
you're really feeling things from that character's side? Yeah, and if I can't feel it, I don't sing it. Uh-huh. Sometimes bands or Bela or other collaborators will come to me with song ideas, and I go, ooh, that's not, that's not what I'm able to embody and share. And when a song comes to me or an idea comes to me or some kind of moment of inspiration, it's so clear that that's something I have to pursue. Clarity is the one thing I have had with my voice. That's so necessary because otherwise you lose your voice. <laughs> Tell me about this character. I'm going to play a little bit of a song from your previous album, um, City of Refuge. This is Last Train yeah. uh, that you wrote with Kai Welsh, right? Yes. Gun, they only shoot straight lines. Can't stop trying to bend the ground I've covered now. And the clock ticks louder when I try to slow it down. None can judge the things I've done here. I did what I had to do and just a little bit more. Rows of faces who could never see me anyhow. I'll hitch to Juno for they figure it out segment there from Last Train, a song written by Kai Welsh and Abigail Washburn. Abby is my guest today on the show. We're talking about her recent album, uh, which she recorded with her husband, Bela Fleck, but also some of her um, older tunes like that one. Um, Abby, there's a distinctive character. What's his or her story there? Well, somebody who definitely did something bad yeah, and um, is trying to uh, figure out... (laughs) But where redemption is, and the only thing that they're certain of is that time is ticking. It's going, and it continues to tick, and there's a solace in that. And they clearly don't trust the justice system because the justice system has never cared for them when they needed help in the past. It's a song about redemption uh, and the eternal, and perhaps a little bit of social commentary about how our justice system only gets involved when people have gone bad. 
And it, it's deeply sympathetic to this person. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's songs can make us feel so identified, you know, with whatever that person's going through. Like, this person may have shot somebody. They may have, yeah. <laughs> I'm not sure, but maybe. Yeah. But uh, how did that song, did, was the idea yours or was it Kai's or did it come up in your collaboration? Uh, it, I had the, the um, chorus. Uh-huh. And Kai and I were trying to think about what the song was. And we were on tour in China. And uh, he was sleeping in, we were staying at a friend's apartment. And he was sleeping on the couch in the living room. And there was this clock that kept ticking and ticking and ticking all night. And he couldn't sleep. And, um, but it got him to thinking. And it got him to thinking about, uh, about time just ticking and ticking and ticking and ticking. And how sometimes when you can hear time, it feels so slow. And so we, we started imagining what would it, who would you have to be for time to feel so, so slow? Um, we keep coming back to your work in China and um, some of the Chinese music you perform. So I wanted to play an example of that for our audience. Um, this is from you and the Sparrow Quartet, the quartet that you and Bela and Ben Soli on cello and Casey Dreisen, Dreisen. who's a fiddler. Uh, this is one that you guys perform. Uh, and it is called Taiyang Chulai. Not bad, not bad. It's Taiyang Chulai. <laughs> got it. Great. Uh, you're singing this in uh, Mandarin? Mandarin Chinese. It's a Sichuan folk song, right? Yes, I learned it from a Sichuanese woman. Mm-hmm. And then you got you got additional instruction from a cab driver, I understand? Uh, yes, yes. <laughs> yes, you, you always have to use arm gestures when you do Chinese folk songs. It's like a part of the a part of the institutionalized tradition. Well, let's hear a little bit of Taiyang Chulai.
That was the song Taiyang Chulai, a Sichuan folk song from China, uh, sung there by Abigail Washburn, Abby Washburn, who's my guest on the show today, and performed uh, by the Sparrow Quartet, consisting of Abby, uh, Bela Fleck, and um, Ben Soli, and uh, Casey Dreesen. Yes, and I hope everybody was imagining my arms reaching for the sky and (laughs) heralding the sun. And... I believe that was Bela there playing uh, the banjo in a style that reminded me of a traditional Chinese instrument, the pipa. Definitely the pipa. Yeah. yeah, and he he was he definitely absorbed that approach to that song when we were in China with pipa players. Pipa, yeah, which is a, a stringed instrument. It's played sort of upright, but it's plucked with three fingers, right? Like a banjo. All all five. All five. Oh wow. All five have um, uh, picks taped onto them, and they use the all five strings and all five fingers in both directions. So that's how they're able to play those amazingly fast runs? Yes. <laughs> it's a miracle that Bela can do it at all. It is, a, it is incredible. When I heard that, um, <laughs> that is an example of how he has managed to, you know, sort of assimilate all kinds of music to, yeah. to banjo. Well, let's get back to the current album with one last song. I'd like you to pick it uh, from among those we haven't played yet. Oh, okay, i got to think. Oh, Little Birdie. I love Little Birdie. I thought you might say that one. Yeah. Uh, this, again, is one you guys uh, co-wrote, right? Yeah, yeah. Bela and I co-wrote this. This is uh, one where I had the, the chorus. Little Birdie, why'd you fly so soon? Has your mama been gone too long? I had that part, and then Bela and I were trying to imagine what, what it was about. And we actually wrote two entirely separate sets of lyrics, um, one that was more esoteric and kind of talking about you know, here are these two little birds in the nests, and why is it that, that one bird stays and one bird goes, these little, little birds, you know, fresh fresh birds in life. And then this other set of lyrics ended up being a, a very specific story about a um, a crocodile, and what, it was sort of like one of those old Appalachian tales of warning for children, you know, don't go messing around in the lie, or don't, you know, because th- bad things will happen, don't jump from the nest too soon, or a crocodile will eat you, you know. So that's sort of what it, it ended up becoming was this tale of warning that if you jump too soon, there are actually things out there that are waiting for um, vulnerable little birds to come along. And luckily in our song, not luckily, we actually did intend this. I said, the bird cannot die on my watch. So Mama Bird saves the little baby birdie in the end. And, um, you know, Mama grabs the birdie and flies, you know. So it works out okay, but it's, uh, it's quite the daunting little ballad. Well, you ever notice how um, if you followed all the folk wisdom out there, you'd be constantly conflicted about what to do? Look before you leap. He who hesitates is lost. <laughs> Good point. <laughs> <laughs> it's somewhere in the middle, man. <laughs> well, that's where we're going to leave it with this song uh, by you and Bela Fleck, uh, Little Birdie. And, Abby, it's been a real joy talking to you and Thank listening you to your music. It. So much for sharing it with people. And um, Well, we'll be out there soon at SF Jazz at the end of November. Yeah. Hopefully people can come join us. And that performance with Abigail Washburn and Bela Fleck takes place November 28th at the SF Jazz Center in San Francisco. You can learn more about Abigail Washburn at her website, abigailwashburn.com. And you can learn more about this program at our website, 7thAvenueProject.com. This has been the 7th Avenue Project. I'm Robert Polly. Two little birdies all in the nest. One little birdie's just a taking his rest. Other